Just a note before we start. Our show talks about touchy subjects that may be difficult for some of our listeners. Take care of yourself. If you feel you need to seek help, see the links at the end of our show notes for resources. Hey y'all, and welcome to Touchy Subjects Podcast, the podcast that aims to break the silence that tends to come with conversations around domestic and sexual violence. I'm Sean. And I'm Amanda. And today we're going to be talking about domestic and sexual violence in the military with our special guest, Staff Sergeant Jakia Lindley. So thank you for joining us today, Jakia. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, We are so excited to have you on our show today. After we had met before, I just knew that our episode with you was going to be awesome. Um, So to show our audience just how awesome of a person you are, would you just quickly introduce yourself? Okay, so I'm a staff sergeant in the United States Air Force, and I'm also a master resiliency trainer, and I am also a Department of Defense sexual assault victim advocate. So what those titles mean is for the resiliency training, I train um, airmen and civilian across the force about skills that they can use whenever they experience trauma or they experience any kind of setback in their life and they're having a really hard time moving forward. I have these set of skills and tools that I can teach them um, to overcome these traumas in their lives, to overcome a lot of these barriers and a lot of these things that they're facing on a day-to-day basis so they don't have to go through or makes it a lot easier for them to um, face adversity and overcome it um, and be on top of it instead of having it um, really set them back in a way that they can't move forward. And as a Department of Defense Sexual Assault Victim Advocate, I am an advocate for um, men and women um, in the military whenever they experience a sexual assault. And what that looks like is whenever there's a report or someone wants to come forward or someone comes to our office or they call the hotline and they get in touch with me or the, um, the SARC, which is Sexual Assault Response Coordinator, um, and they just want to talk. And that can look like just venting um, about the situations that they've been through and they leave our office or they hang up the phone and we don't hear it from them again. And that's sometimes that's all they need in their process or they come into our office or we meet in person if they don't wanna come to our office and we can take a report. And what that looks like, they can have two reporting options, which is restricted reporting. And restricted reporting means that the victim um, makes a report. They don't necessarily have to name their assailant. They don't have to put their assailant on the paper, but they just wanna put it on record. It's kind of like making a police report um, and it's just on file for if they wanna use it later on down the road. And they describe the events that happened to them. And at that time, they can receive a victim advocate like me. And we can go through them with um, the whole entire process of healing. We can go do um, a safe kit at the um, hospital. We can go do um, mental health treatment, other kind of services. I'm there for them. And then the other side of that is unrestricted reporting, which means the victim names their assailant. So now there's a name attached to this report and that starts an official investigation. So we have security forces, which is the military police um, involved. And we also have OSI, which is Office of Special Investigation, which is the military, well, the Air Force FBI. So you have NCIS for the Navy, and then you have CID, um, for the Army, and then also Marines uses NCIS as well. 
Um, so they're involved during the whole entire process. So the named assailant gets booked, you know, fingerprinted, everything, and then they can ask for an attorney or they can um, ask, um, answer questions from the police. But it's always advised whenever you're dealing with law enforcement, always, 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 even if you're not guilty, always, always get legal advice before you speak to anyone because you don't want to self-incriminate. Uh, so we go through the process with the victim in that way. And if they go to, if it gets preferred to a court martial, the victim and survivor, they can have me assist them through the court, uh, court martialing process. If they don't want, um, they can terminate um, victim advocacy services at any point. So they can have me for one day, a couple hours, or they do the entire process. Um, if they choose to, or they can request a different victim advocate if they don't feel comfortable with me, or they want someone of the same gender, or they just want someone else. I just like because sometimes you know your energy matches energy, and if you don't, if you're not feeling that, then it's just like oh, I don't want this person. Even though this person can have all the skills and be completely qualified, they're just not the right um, type of person. So there's tons of victim advocates that you can choose from. Awesome. Well, thank you for that introduction. And hopefully that gives the audience some kind of idea, just the wealth of knowledge that you are bringing to the table for this discussion today. But I did want to ask too, um, in, in like the description of everything that you were giving, you mentioned that when they report and they use the name that goes into like actual, like they start the investigation and everything. How often would you say that you run across that? where they actually feel comfortable enough during that initial response to actually name the person who was, who was assaulted them. Oh, wow. It's like a, it's like a mixture there because when you have the victim, they come to you there. Sometimes they have a very clear mind of what they want and what happened. And you have um, another mix of, you know, they just, they're fearful. They just want to get this information out. They don't want to get anyone in trouble. Uh, sometimes they don't even know their name. And you, um, there's just so many different um, factors to this. So you never know what you're going to get. There's not like a checkbox of what's going to come through your door or what's going to call on your phone. Um, so you're just prepared for anything. And if the assailant, um, I'm sorry, if the victim doesn't know who the assailant is, but they want to do an unrestricted report, they can still do that as well. And that's where you have um, the catch. So catch is a program where you may not know the um, assailant name, or if you do, you don't want, you want to remain nameless. You can give different descriptive um, details about the assailant. Um, they had a tattoo on their left shoulder, and it looked like this, or they had a birthmark, or they were tall, green eyes, you know, whatever. They give all descriptive information that they can, and it's um, placed into this system. And what the system is, is 100% anonymous. So what, they're, um, what the system does is put all this information that the victim had put into the system. And if these details match anything that's already in their system, they can say, oh, there's a match. So this victim had put a name to this person, but didn't want to um, want to remain anonymous. Now they have, oh, okay, we have a case over here and case over here. They have matching details. Now they can reach back out to the victim saying, hey, there was a match in the system. Would you like to try to move forward? Because a lot of times, a lot of victims won't come and it's not everyone. A lot of times, a lot of victims will not come forward if they feel they are the only one. And with this program, um, if there's a match in the system, it lets the victim know like, hey, it, 
repeat offender. This person has been tied to another case. Would you like to come forward? And sometimes with that, it lets the victim know that they're not alone. And if they come forward, maybe that other person will come forward too. So now you have two victims coming forward against this one perpetrator. And that will make them feel like a little sense of insecurity, like, oh, okay, I'm not alone. Someone else is going through there. Maybe we can get this guy or get this girl or, you know, get this person. Um, or it's just sometimes, you know, having someone out there with you is good. Yeah, a lot of times our... Um our self-preservation doesn't necessarily match the preservation that we have for other people. So, you know, we're not necessarily going to, you know, report this person's name or whatever because of ourselves. But if we know that, you know, they've um, assaulted other people, they're out there and they can still potentially assault more people, we we have like a little bit of self duty to like, okay, I need to stop them from harming someone else. So if you know that this person's a repeat offender, you know that they're probably going to, you know, offend again, it might mm -hmm. help a little bit in that reporting process. Yeah, that's what the exact, um, what the catch program is for is try to catch repeat offenders. So you're exactly correct. And one of the reasons that I wanted to ask that question um, is because we know that one of the barriers that victims of domestic and sexual violence, specifically in the military, may face is that they may be worried that because the person who assaulted them is an officer or somebody who's a higher rank than them, that there may be repercussions for them now if they do report that person. So if they reported anonymously, instead of reporting that person's name, they still may be able to get the services that they needed to be able to talk to somebody about what the what they just experienced without having to actually give the name of somebody that may cause them further harm down the line. Yes. Yes. So those reporting, so with restricted, with the not naming of the offender, they receive the exact same services as unres uh, unrestricted with the exception of there's no investigation and the victim is not able to get an expedited transfer. So an expedited transfer, we call them ET for short, is removing the um, the victim from the situation as soon as possible. Uh, sometimes that can look like as quick as two weeks, depending on the situation, how fast the moving pieces can um, can work out. Um, sometimes it's 30 days, sometimes it's two months, but it's removing the victim from that area with the offender and getting them to a support group where there's um, support, um, like support group, like your friends or your family, or just a completely different area so that um, the victim can begin their healing process and they don't have to go through the court marshaling process if there is one or the entire investigation in the same exact area with the perpetrator. Um, so those are the only two services that um, a victim who chooses to go to the restricted without naming the assailant, um, would not be able to receive, but everything else they're able to receive medical treatment, mental health treatment, chaplain services if they um, if they need that, and a plethora of other different services. So they wouldn't be able to receive the um, expedited transfer, but would they still be able to get a transfer to somewhere else if they were to report a sexual assault? If they did it under um, unrestricted. 
So the only way, so with expedited transfer, um, in order to get the get it approved, you need to have command support. So command support would mean your commander has to sign off you leaving their organization for you to go somewhere else. Um, such, um, the sapper office can't just remove a victim um, from a unit and place them somewhere else without the commander knowing like, why did you just take my person? I, I'm, a, I'm short of body. I don't have, like, I don't understand what's going on. So you need to have the command support um, so they can help facilitate that because now the new commander at the new base has to support you coming there. And, you know, it's all these different signatures. Um, so we can make sure that the um, process for the um, victim is as least traumatic as possible because there's a lot of different moving pieces and we want to make sure there's warm handoffs and the care of the victim moving through the entire process. So I just want to... Um kind of comment for our audience and you know all all victims have had their safety violated um when we're talking about somebody who's been victimized in the military that safety violation crosses a lot of different boundaries as well you're not talking about like this was um you know maybe just someone I work with and only have to see around other people. Like these people are bunking together and they're dining together and they're, they're, they're living their lives and working in with the same people all day, every day. Um, so there's just a whole nother dynamic when these things go on in the military that I think that regular civilians, like I didn't, I mean, I guess I would have known if I'd really thought about it, but it's not something that we generally tend to think about because it's not our lives that's being affected every day. Um, so do you want to talk about that a little bit? Just like what is there, where's that dynamic go? So it is very, I'll speak to my own personal experience when it comes to that. So I was assaulted um, from one of my coworkers. I had just moved to my new base and I was there, um, he was my sponsor. So a sponsor is a person who makes sure that you in process is correctly. They take you to your appointments. If you don't have um, a car, they facilitate everything that you need to get in process into the base. And so with my sponsor, um, he, he picked me up, took me around, like I went to work, he picked me up, took me around to my appointments, introduced me to my new sections, where the command office is and everything that I needed to do with getting signatures on my end processing checklist. And at the same time, he made me so uncomfortable and he kept making comments about, you know, my hair, my body. Um, he said, oh, you look so exotic. You must be mixed with so many different things. And I'm like, nope, I'm just a black woman. I'm just here, just got here to this base. I'm just trying to get in process. So then he's like, oh, are you married? I said, like, yes, I'm, I'm married. I have a daughter. And he's like, oh, okay. Well, no, not, not, a, sorry, not at the time I didn't have a daughter, but I'm like, I'm married. And he's like, oh yeah, I'm married too. I have, I have kids. And he's like, just talking to you. He's like, it just seems so, so natural, so free flowing. And I just know with your personality that you will make an amazing girlfriend. I know you're an amazing girlfriend and I know I'll be an amazing boyfriend. I'm just like, okay, I don't know where this conversation is going, but I'm just like, I'm just trying to end process. Is there a way that, you know, maybe you can drop me back off at work. And he ended up leaving the base 
And I'm just like, where are we going? And I'm te- at this time, I'm texting my husband saying, hey, this guy is taking me off base. He says, um, I said, we're on this road. I said, where are we going? He's like, oh, we're going to go get some lunch. It's lunchtime. And I'm like, okay, well, where are we going? And he's like, well, I'll let you know when we get there. And I had just got here. So I'm, I'm like sensory, just like looking out for everything because I'm in this car with this guy. Uh, he took me off base. I'm very new. I don't know where I'm at. And I'm texting my husband and he won't disclose the name of the restaurant. And I'm just thinking, I was like, okay, do I jump out this car? Do I run? Do I scream? I was like, I don't know what to do. So my, I went into kind of like survival mode. I'm like, okay, well, as long as we um, are, as long as we get to the place, I can get out. I can do something. I didn't think about calling 911 because I didn't think I was in immediate danger, but I just, I felt so uncomfortable. And then eventually we get there and um, I tell my husband where I'm at and he comes and we go back and I go back to the base and he had um, had these same behaviors the entire time when I'll be working, he will make comments about me and my body. And then we had an armory and in the armory, um, there's two people that um, you're supposed to open the armory with. You have an NCO and then you have an airman. So the NCO controls the actual weapon part and the airman control the ammo. So you, one person can't just put the entire weapon together as a process. So with him, we had to do the process to get into the armory. And he was just trying to show me what it looked like. This was gonna be my program for me to eventually take over. And we're in this armory, he's fully armed. He has a gun, he has M9 on his side loaded. And we go into the armory and I'm not, I'm not, um, I'm not carrying anything. I don't have any protection. And we go into the armory, we sign in, he locks the doors, close the gates and everything. And in there, he was, um, he showed me the weapons and the weapons cases and told me how we want to, um, how we run and manage the armory, how we take our inventories and secure everything. And then while he's giving me the rundown of that, he also says he loves working the armory because it's one of his happy places. It's one of the places where he can just come in here and really relax because he can play his music as loud as he wants and no one can hear anything. And then he says he can scream as loud as he can and no one can hear anything because it's a very safe, a uh, very quiet um, armory where no one can hear. I guess it was soundproof. And then he says, and then no one can get in because it's locked. And then no one can get out because I have to unlock it. So he's like, it's just very secured place. And then he's looking at me and he's coming towards me and he's carrying a weapon and I don't have anything and I am panicking I'm freaking out and I'm just telling him to get away from me don't touch me and then he's just trying to deflect he's like oh no I'm just trying to tell you that you look good and just making very very making me so uncomfortable and all the weapons are locked up so it's not like I can just open like take the um and they're key coded so it's not like I can just like oh yeah you know trying to figure out the lock while he's coming at me like oh yeah okay and then next you know as soon as I figure out the um the passcode to the um weapon I get the weapon out and then I'm like ha I gotcha so it's just like it was it it was like the most uncomfortable situation and eventually I talked myself out and he lets me out of the armory and I run and I make a report and in that sense, I was so fearful because he had a gun and I was afraid he was going to use it on me. He was cornering me in the, in the armory and he had his hand on his side. And I was so fearful of my life that I went and I, I, I named him immediately. 
and they did a report and he ended up getting on a control roster and a control roster is they place you basically up under a microscope for six months and if there's any infraction then they can elevate it to like an article 15 removing your stripe or whatever punishment that the commander chooses they want to do and they give him an lor which is a letter of reprimand um, and the continual um, a progressive discipline and that was it that was the only thing they did to him and I still had to work beside him. And what they would tell me, I was so, so uncomfortable. I was so fearful of this man. And my leadership kept saying, well, he's already been dealt with. So you just have to suck it up. And I'm just like, this man cornered me in an armory with a loaded M9 and you're telling me to get over it. And I so he was my superior um, ranking person over me because um, I was still an airman and he was an um he was a staff sergeant. So I still had to report to him and respect him and give him the custom and courtesies as an NCO. And it was the most difficult thing to me because he tried to assault me, he tried to rape me in an armory with a loaded M9 and I have to report to him and give him customs and courtesy and respect. And if I did not, I will be the one in trouble for disrespecting an NCO, which is a non-commissioned officer. And I had to um, be trained by him still. I had to report to him still. I had to work beside him. And they just kept telling me, is he's already been dealt with, just get over it and still give him that honor and respect because of the title and position that he held. And if that doesn't mess with you mentally, I don't know what will. Like, it was just so insane. And like, one of those things, like, you kind of feel like you're living in a twilight zone. Like, is this real? Like, this just happened to me and they're telling me to get over it. No one referred me to mental health. No one gave me services. They kind of just, they looked at me as if I was the problem for not sucking it up. And I was the problem for even reporting him in the first place because he was one of the highly favored NCOs in our work center. He was a very spiritual, godly man. So everyone really felt like family around him. And here it is, I get here in less than two months, I'm reporting this person and come to find out he did the exact same thing or similar situation at his last base to how he ended up here. And he was a, pretty much a repeat offender, but I was the one that just seemed like I came out of nowhere reporting this person who already had a history and they blamed me and it was, it was very difficult working there and it was never the same. And I was ostracized every single day until I left that base. And just from my experience, it's not an anomaly. It's, it happens all the time where people are afraid to report because of one of the barriers would be the rank. Um, and they just try to deal with it um, because they feel like they don't have a case. They feel like no one will believe them. And because this person is in this position, it just, uh, it just seems like they're not able to commit any kind of infractions of that because they're highly favored. They're high in these high positions for a reason. They're entrusted with the care of the ones below them. So it just seems like they're not able to commit any of these crimes that happens is only, oh, it's only the lower ranking people that do these things. Well, reports say it's a lot of the high ranking people, officials in our military that do these things and they get away with it, which is why it's a lot of a problem right now. Thank you so much for one, being willing to share your story and stuff with our audience. I'm sure 
there are people who are going to be listen who are going to be listening who are going to be able to at least resonate with some of those pieces especially the part of really not having a lot of support like if like it's why I, I can imagine that having somebody like yourself now who is in that position like had you had somebody like yourself at that moment I can imagine just how much more helpful that would have been to you at that point instead of only, instead of being the one who is just looking like the problem child now of this unit because you're the one who's reporting somebody instead of having somebody in your corner backing you up yes it was it was extremely scary and I think about that as well if I had that support what it would have looked like for me um but I didn't and I walked on eggshells I was so quiet and that moment changed me it's just like no one understood the gravity of that situation where I could have died if I made the wrong choice of words that made the wrong move if I didn't know because I was panicking in that army I didn't know what to do I'm just like okay do I use humor to get myself out of it I'm pretty um witty when it comes to stuff I'm like let's try humor and humor actually got me out of that situation um, because at first it was just like I was very defensive I was very angry I was trying to protect myself and then you have me at that time I think I weighed like a hundred and maybe six pounds I was very tiny and this, this guy he weighed about 220 230 pounds he was very stocky he, he lifts weights and everything and I'm trying to figure out okay every little bit of muscle in my body is going to try to attack this man. It's not going to work. So I looked at that. I was like, there's absolutely no way I'm going to be able to win this battle. Okay, cool. Um, body comparison, I'm going to lose. I'm also going to lose because he has a loaded weapon and it will be completely justified if something were to happen and I'm the, I try to um, defend myself and he could easily turn the situation. She attacked me in the armory. I couldn't get her off me. I had to, I had to defend myself because any situation in armory is just like, if something goes wrong, I guess he could just decide he wanted to use use of force to control the situation where he felt threatened. Um, so I was afraid of that. And then I looked at everything around me. What can I use to defend myself? Well, all the weapons are locked up. And even if I got a weapon out, there's no ammo in here. So I have a empty M4 just trying to knock this guy out when he has uh, rounds in the chamber. Um, so that wasn't working. And then trying to be assertive and stand up for myself was not working. So I just start using humor. I was like, I'm gonna laugh my ass out of this situation. Let's see how far he can take me. <laughs> and I it, it worked a little bit because he saw how comfortable I was. And I started making jokes. I'm like, oh, you're so crazy. You're this, you're that. Oh, ha ha ha. You know, let's go get some food or something. I, I can't really remember what I said in that situation. But I know like the humor kind of cut down the tents of it and he started backing up off me and he put his he took his hand off his weapon he backed off me and then he was like okay you know let's just leave you know I'll, I'll see you later I'm like okay and I bolted out of there I guess at this point if I can laugh my way out of like a hostage situation with a guy with an M9 I should start doing stand-up um, comedy um <laughs> but yeah it was it was the toughest situation because I'm going through every single survival tactic that I know and every different scenario where it's like you're just like I'm throwing spaghetti at a wall figuring out what sticks and then to have no one support me in that situation it's like well he, he didn't die he didn't you didn't die he didn't draw his weapon on you so but he has a hand on his weapon he was coming at me he cornered me I was I was right there and eventually he ends up assaulting me later and 
and that's what it is yeah and he assaults me in my work center and that's what that's what got reported because no one cared about the armory but he physically assaulted me i think a week after the armory when he found out that no one really cared he assaulted me yeah if only there had been some kind of warning signs that this might have happened I know, like, there was no red flags. There was literally nothing hmm. leading up to this. And, of course, he assaulted other people as well, so. Well, and, you know, the whole, oh, nobody's really taking it seriously. Oh, I got a slap on the wrist. That just emboldens people to take things further. And had he had more of a reprimand than, you know, the, the slap on the wrist or, or a letter or whatever it was, um, you know, maybe that wouldn't have happened. Yeah, exactly. And he was very bold. He made comments on my Instagram, commented about me and my body and everything. So I made all my page um, private and no one took it seriously. And that's why we have a lot of um, problems in the military. It's like people don't take things. A lot of people do not take things seriously. And then when um, when you have stuff like that, where I ended up reporting and nothing happened, the justice system is just so flawed, where why would someone want to report anything? I was held in an army with someone armed with a weapon, and he tried to assault me. And that's as far as it went. No one did anything in that situation. And then he ended up assaulting me a week or two later. And then that's when they're like, okay, I guess we'll do something. It doesn't make anyone want to report and it's, it's scary. And then having to still have to work with him and give him his respect is a huge slap in the face of victims. It was a huge slap in the face to me. Yeah. It's like, we, like, we have people like from our shelters and everything who will work with victims. Like if they have to go to court and potentially see the person, like we want people there to be able to help and support them, but we also don't want to have to make victims and survivors constantly have to see the person who assaulted them because if that person is being forced to see the person who assaulted them over and over and over again that's re-traumatizing you're being forced to relive the experiences that person put you through every time but i can't even imagine what it would have to be like to put on the face of giving respect and following the commands of somebody who put me in that situation like the the slap in the face that that is to victims and survivors of saying, well, you reported it. We gave him the reprimand. Now continue on about your day as if nothing ever happened. Yeah, it is, it is, is huge. And that's why I, I think at that moment was when I started, like you said, developing my mask. I wore my mask very well. It was at that moment. I knew that I, I literally couldn't be Jakia. I had to create this, persona I had to create this other person to be able to deal with that comfortably or not even comfortable to just tolerate it because Jakia I, I I couldn't I'm a fighter I'm like I I don't I you disrespect me especially in that way I don't want to talk to you I don't want to do anything near I I don't want you to be around me I don't want you in that job and it's just and, I, and it wasn't working. The justice system told me that they already handled it, that I need to move forward. I need to get over it. And there was nothing that they would do to, um, for me. So I had to create this other person mentally in order to try to cope with my situation, how to get through my situation. And that's why eventually I became a master resiliency instructor because I'm just like, 
I am just spiraling inside. I have all this anger. I have all this hurt. I have all this, I have all these emotions and I'm struggling to come to work every single day and I don't know how to deal with it. And then taking these courses to become an instructor, although it did not fix my situation, I was able to work with what I had and try to structure my life so it did not have its daily effect on me in that horrible way. I was I was still constantly battling depression and anxiety every time I saw him, but the triggers wouldn't leave me in a crippling state where I could not function anymore. Um, so that's what I had to deal with. And then the retaliation that came from after that was just immense. Like I just... I was so depressed. I was losing my hair, my, my skin, my everything. I was just had so much anxiety just working there. And they were punishing me every single day after that. And it wasn't like there was no proof. It wasn't like there was literally nothing out of thin air. They had all the proof that they needed, which is why they ended up punishing him. But yet it just, that was it. That's all they can do for me. And so one more thing for our audience, because um, some of this thing, some of these things might sound bewildering to you. The military system has their own rules that they follow by. You know, they don't they don't use the the same rules that the rest of the world uses. They have their own justice system. They have their own, um, you know, uh, military police they have their own mental health services they have their own doctors and and hospitals and things like that so it's not as easy as just like oh this officer didn't believe me at the city level i'm going to go to the sheriff's office um you don't have all of those options out there if you're this is the person you report to then that's the person you report to so when one person shuts it down there really aren't a whole lot of alternatives. You're correct. So we have the UCMJ, which is the Uniform Code of Military Justice. That's what we operate everything um, on for all our laws, all our rules and regulations is based off the UCMJ. So when you have um, a unit that is not supportive in anything that you want to do or reporting instructions or any kind of, or making a report, you have other, I guess, other programs you can go to, which would be EO, which is Equal Opportunity, or the IAG, which is Inspector General. And those two programs, so EO deals with um, any form of discrimination, like um, your race, your gender, your religion, disabilities, and now they take on sexual harassment now, which is um, new for as of 20, I think 2021, 2022 is a new, they, they're taking that over um, because that fell up under IG. So now you have that, but then you also have IG when they deal with reprisal and retaliation. So if you made a protective communication, you can go to the IG. Um, protective communication is if you use, if you use the chaplain's office or you use your first sergeant or you use your commander or someone else in that protective um, communication um, role and that information got leaked or that information got used against you you can go to the IG. But when you have those two programs and your complaint falls outside of those realms, there's nowhere else for you to go. We don't have an HR department where it's like, oh, okay, if I don't meet the criteria for the IG or I don't meet that criteria for the EO, we don't have anywhere else for us to go. So those complaints just sit with you. You can try to have someone look into it. You can try to have someone advocate for you. But if it's not 
in those realms, the scope of their responsibility, there's nowhere else for you to make your report to. And even then, I used the IG at one point to report um, my chain of command for the retaliation and abuse I was being subjected to. And that looked like they removed me from annual awards. They removed me from quarterly rewards. They marked me down on my EPR. They, um, they harassed me in the hospital. Um, so they were doing so many different things. And when I went to go report to the IG inspector general, he, he was a major, he was an O, O3 and no, oh, sorry, O4. And he told me, since I'm going up against high ranking officials, such as my chief and my commander, that it will, I will not win. I will not be successful. And he said, I think you need to reevaluate this report. He's like, I can take the report, but chiefs are the top 1% of the enlisted force. And they're there for a reason. And when they make chief, they have a lot of friends. And he said, you're going to go up against not one chief, but you're going to go up against all chiefs that have his back. And then you have you. He said, you um, are a victim of assault. He said multiple times. And he said multiple times in air quotes. And I'm just like, you act like none of these were substantiated. One went to court and got put in jail time. And the other one got put on a control roster. So it wasn't like my reports were unsubstantiated, but he put in an air quotes like, oh, you're a victim of sexual assault. So they're going to use a lot of this against you because you don't have um, a clean image or your reputation is damaged. It's like damaged because I was a victim of assault. He's like, well, it just doesn't look good. So you're going up against all these high ranking people and you have you. He's like, if I was you, I wouldn't make this report. And I was like, why? He said, because you're going to make, they're going to trash you. They're going to make you look like the worst person in the world and they're going to come out on top. So I wouldn't report. He's like, just sleep on it. And if you don't feel, if you say you feel still feel the same way tomorrow, then we'll make the report. But I, I highly advise you to think about what you're about to do. And the I and the reason why I say all that is because the IG is supposed to be an independent party. They're not supposed to be biased. They're supposed to be the most unbiased organization on your base because that's where you're reporting anything to these organizations. And their boss and their command is outside of your base. Their boss and command could be stationed in another state. So when I went there and I was told that, that is another um, pitfall, another hole in the program because that wasn't supposed to happen. So when you're going to these organizations that are supposed to help you get past these barriers and they're in line with um, doing the exact same thing as your command, you just you just, um, you see that there's so many flaws and that um, they're failing you because you don't have anywhere else to go. Yeah, um, and I'm hoping that those of you who are listening can kind of see the pieces of what a lot of victims and a lot of victim advocates and stuff will be consistently telling people is that when somebody is choosing to report a sexual assault, there's a lot of barriers that are put in place to them. The barriers that are specific to the military some of these things have parallels to those of us who are civilians. So if it's somebody who is in a powerful position, be it the CEO of a company that you work for, be it the district manager of a company, be it um, a, an elected official, these are people who have a lot of power in the communities that they are a part of. So if, you, if that victim is choosing to report this sexual assault, they're probably going to hear some of those similar things. Are you sure you want to go through with this report? 
there's going to potentially be a lot of reprisals against you for making this report because of the friends this person has. So it's not that all of the barriers that victims in the military experience are going to be different than what civilian victims are going to experience. They're going to have parallels. It's just that those of us who are civilians and experience a sexual assault, we may have other avenues, maybe not a lot of great avenues, but some other avenues, whereas someone in the military, this is your one path. And if that path isn't working for you or you've been failed by that path, you're basically shit out of luck. Yeah, and you, you, you are because you don't really have anywhere else to go. So when you go to the one program that is supposed to help and it fails you, now you have to tell your story to another person. And if that doesn't work, now you're telling your story to another one. So you're constantly, you end up becoming very desensitized to your own trauma because now you're, you're being so re-traumatized by having to retell, retell someone. And every time you get constantly rejected or it doesn't work, now you're having more trauma because no one wants to listen to you. No one wants to believe you. No one wants to take your story and push it further. No one wants to give you help. So you're constantly receiving rejection. And then a lot of victims, they just say, you know what? It's not even worth it. Forget it. And then that person, that perpetrator just goes on about their day like, oh, okay, that person gave up. And then they end up assaulting again and again and again until that one person says, you know what? Forget it. I'm going to go ahead and report, I'm going to just take everything that happens and I'm just going to take it on a chin because this is not right. But a lot of people cannot be in that situation because they have to think about their families. And there was a lot of times I didn't report because I thought about my family. I thought about um, the ways that I was threatened with them removing my rank. When you remove my rank, you remove my money. And when you take away my money, you're taking away the livelihood of my daughter. You're taking away the livelihood of me being able to afford rent for gas in my car, my car payment. Now I'm struggling on a reduced income because I chose to speak out against a system that failed me. And I'm taking a huge risk right now because I, when I wanted to write my book, I talked to a person in IG, Inspector General. They told me not to write my book. So many things will happen. They said, oh, you can get jail time. I was like, jail time for my freedom of speech. And he said, it's making the military look bad. I was like, no, it's not making the military look bad. It's bringing awareness for programs that are failing in so many different ways that they may not be aware of. And it takes one person. We Change does not happen by being quiet. And so for the IG inspector, IG uh, personnel telling me and threatening me not to speak out, change is not going to happen because of being silent. It needs to be addressed. These programs are failing our defenders. They cannot come forward. They are being retaliated against. They're being receiving reprisal. They are, um, they are living in fear of the trauma and they end up separating. No one should have to separate our active duty service or the military in general because of being, um, being silenced from living with trauma and having to seek treatment outside of the service. No one should have to be able, no one should do that or be forced to have to leave and force um, um, get rid of their livelihood because they're afraid of speaking out because of the, um, the retribution that they receive. This is not right. Yeah. And I, I hate the argument against something like you publishing your book where it's like, oh, you're going to make the military look bad. Or if you make this report, you're going to make our company look bad or whatever it is with quote unquote, making it look bad. You look bad because you're allowing the sexual assaults to take place and you're not doing shit about it. Like, that's why you're looking bad. 
you'll look great. If you enact policies that don't allow for sexual people who have sexually assaulted other members of the military to remain in officer positions, you'll look good if you make it so that anyone who has done harm to their fellow service member will have repercussions. It's like, that's how you make it look good. And if you're trying to have our military be strong and everything, we want to say like our military is the strongest military. It's like you will make sure that the people who are serving for you respect their commanders and want to serve for them. I don't want to serve under somebody who I know has done harm to me or one of my crewmates. I don't want to be there. I have no faith in leadership if I know that if leadership can do harm to us, they're not going to be punished for it. Exactly. Exactly. And the numbers are there. So it's not like I'm just making them up. One in three service women will be assaulted in their career. And one in five men in the military will be assaulted. So the, the numbers are there. And it's a whole breakdown of everything. So it's not like it's um, an isolated event. It's not like something that is not a, um, a problem that's existing in an organization. We have reports on it. And the reports are public knowledge. And you can go in there and you can read them. I publish them on my blogs all the time. And I talk about them. And for them to still say, oh, well, we don't know why the, the suicide rate of veterans is so high. We don't know what's going on. I'm just like, stop looking elsewhere. The numbers are right here. There's a direct correlation with our, and it's not the number one reason, but it's a direct correlation between our suicide rate and um, reporting of sexual assault, domestic violence, and retaliation and reprisal of the um, people in power. And they have to look at that and truly wanting to address it. Yeah. And to just also give listeners a kind of like idea of the scope here, the the statistics that Amanda and I will regularly use in presentations is one in four women and one in in 33 men or one in six boys will experience sexual assault at some point. If the statistics are showing that one in five men in the military will experience assault, but we know civilian men experience it at a rate of 1 in 33, that should give you an idea of just how widespread this issue really is in the military. Yeah, it is. It's it's insane. And uh, we have to do better. And there's a program. I'm not sure. I know we're running out of time a little bit, but there's a program in the military with, um, we have the SAPR office and then you have family advocacy, what they call it SAP. So the family advocacy program is for intimate partners. So for me, when I was assaulted by my ex-husband, I couldn't get a sexual assault case. I couldn't go to the staffer office. I went there and they gave me a warm handoff to family advocacy because of that relationship that I had. So to give you understanding, um, staffer office is punitive. Family advocacy is non-punitive, which means if if he was found guilty, and I say guilty in air quotes because um, family advocacy is not a punitive, but if he met criteria for sexual maltreatment, which is rape or emotional maltreatment, the only thing that they can do is offer him therapy. So if anything, if you are ex-spouses, boyfriend, girlfriend, or just intimate partners at some point in your, um, your relationship and you bring up a case against them, which means you file a report you have to go up under family advocacy. And because my my ex-husband, he ended up meeting criteria for sexual maltreatment rape, and the only thing they offered him was therapy. 
that was it. So that was like my, you know, how you have a civil lawsuit and your criminal lawsuit. Well, my civil lawsuit, I won. So that was awarded my damages of, hey, here's a piece of paper. He was a rapist. He's put in the system. There you go. That's it. Now try your luck with the criminal side. So on the criminal side, there was not enough evidence um, to go forward with um, an actual hearing. So although there was enough evidence for the civil side, there was not enough for them to try to bring charges, even though I, he admit, admitted, he, uh, he apologized for assaulting me. He said it in front of his EA, and the EA is a senior master sergeant, one, one rank down from being a chief, which is the highest rank you can go in the listed force. He was one rank down. He admitted it in front of his um, senior master sergeant. Um, his senior master sergeant said um, he apologized. You know, let's try to move forward. I'm sorry. Don't say, don't tell me to move forward. You didn't rape me. He did. And you're telling me that I should accept his apology and move forward. And then he told me, well, think about your child support. If you report him, he doesn't have a job, so he can't pay child support. So you're not going to be able to take care of your daughter. So he's doing all these manipulation and threatening tactics saying, hey, don't report him because if you do it, you're hurting your daughter. And he knew of my rape and he was advocating for him and he was trying to make us have peace together. And on the, on the silver side, he met criteria for being a rapist and had to go to therapy. But because the criminal justice system didn't have enough evidence and they took out all my evidence, they took out my witness statements, they took out um, him admitting, um, he, they took out his admission of um, guilt for an apology, they took all that out. So when you remove all this information, it comes down to he said, she said. Well, of course, if you throw away the hard hitting smoking guns, of course it's gonna be he said, she said. So because of the criminal side, they didn't prefer charges. The commander, which was a pilot, so when it doesn't meet criteria to go to a court martial, they, they defer the case to the convenient authority. The convenient authority is the wing commander. So he was the boss of me and my ex-husband, and he was a pilot. So a pilot with no legal background, no justice system, no anything, he knows how to fly and operate a plane was the judge and jury of my case. So because I didn't have enough hard hitting evidence anymore to go forward with my court martial, he gave my ex a slap on the wrist, say, hey, don't, don't rape again, learn better. And then the advice that I was given from the, um, well, the advice I was given was, now you know of the red flags of toxic relationships so you can prevent this from happening again and you can leave your next relationship sooner. So that was my advice they gave me was, hey, now you know better to do better to prevent you being raped again in your next relationship. And they took that. So the commander, the wing commander went over to my civil side and said, hey, we did not have enough evidence to go to court. So therefore, you need to remove this um, out the system. So they overturned five months later, they overturned my civilian, um, my civil case, which is unheard of. And this is not supposed to happen, but I didn't find out about that until two, about a year and a half later that they did that. No one told me. So when you go to reopen a case, um, both parties are supposed to be involved, me and the um, opposing party. So we can go back to the table, submit our new evidence if we have it. No one informed me. No one knew that they reopened my case and they overturned it. No one told me anything. I had no idea this was happening and it's not supposed to happen. You have 30 days from the finding of the report to write your rebuttal, say, oh, I don't, I don't agree with this. You have 30 days. They did it almost five and a half months later. So who, who, who allowed this to happen? 
is in the regs, it's black and white that you have 30 days, anything outside of 30 days is supposed to stick, it's supposed to stand. But his wing commander that basically gave me the red flag treatment told, and told me to be, make better choices, went five and a half months later and overturned it without my knowledge. And I didn't find that out until a year and a half later when I go to court because now my ex-husband was trying to follow me to Hawaii because I escaped from him. I completely escaped because of the trauma and I came to Hawaii. And because the wing commander overturned it illegally, and which granted him the power for him to come find me and my, um, me and my family again. And I just finished fighting the entire base. I was going to Congress. I was fighting everyone just a couple months ago to protect myself because the military did something that was not right and that they were not supposed to do, that they were not legally supposed to do. And it happened. And I'm fighting for my life in tears every single day, just a couple months ago in court, begging for my life. That, um, that makes me so mad. It's like, these are the people who are supposed to be there to help. Yeah. And all they're helping is the person who is doing the harm. Yeah. And it, it made me upset because during this entire process, I was giving amazing advice. They said, okay, we know I have, I have 40 days to fight for my life. They were just like, okay, we know he's coming here in 40 days. Well, you know what you need to do? Put more security cameras on your house put more security lights in your house, learn the Hawaiian gun laws, get your concealed carry, get some weapons, um, make sure that you don't go out too late, put a camera, um, dash camera in your car, in your front and your back, and then always have your phone ready to record. And it's like, and you may wanna think about selling your house so you can move on base for added protection. And it's like, and all else fails, if he does come here, we can move you and your entire family to another state. And I'm sitting here, and I'm like, wow, this sounds amazing. I need to have security cameras on my house. I need to learn how to, you know, do John Wick style in case he comes on my property. Or, you know, I can sell my house, get rid of my investment, my family home, move on to base, and, you know, stay in the barracks next to, you know, I don't know. I have, you know, the, the, not going to down the bases, but sometimes the bases aren't the best. <laughs> um, or I can just uproot my entire family and I just got to Hawaii, move my daughter to a new school and she just made friends and my husband has to find a new job and I have to find a new job. And then, you know, all this kind of stuff, all because one person's coming here. And I'm like, you know, you guys are treating me as a victim, right? You guys know that you guys wouldn't be doing all this if you didn't believe me. If you didn't see all the evidence that I had, you wouldn't be doing this. Why are you not treating him like a perpetrator? Why has nothing been done? If you're willing to spend all this money and moving me, because military moves are not cheap. You have to ship our vehicles. It can cost around, ooh, I, I'm probably, I'm, ooh, probably like fifty to $60,000, I think, to move one person. Um, I think to move just one military person. Around, around that number, might, someone may correct me later on because I don't know the actual the mm -hmm. pricing of it. But, I would roughly say about fifty dollars to $60,000 to move one military person or the entire family. So you're willing to spend that money to protect me and my family from an impending danger, but you won't stop this person from coming here. So those 40-some days, I fought every single day. I spent so thousands of dollars in um, lawyers and retainers and legal advice and everything to figure out my rights to make him stop 
or at least to figure out how can I get a protection order on myself when he does come here. And the state of Hawaii is very small. So, yeah. <laughs> so I will see him everywhere. So I will have to live in fear my entire time on island while he was here. And because the commander gave him a slap on the wrist, went five and a half months later to overturn something that wasn't supposed to be overturned, allowed this person to come to me again. I am not, I'm not saying much right now, but it is because I am just so baffled by all of these things that are going on, all of, all of this that you've had to endure. And like, I think the most, one of the most profound things you just said was you're treating me like a victim. Why won't you treat him like a perpetrator? Yeah. I think that resonates with a lot of people. It's not that we don't believe what you're saying. It's that we don't believe that that person would have done those things. Yeah, this is this is hard. And I found that out right before I went when I, I was going into court right before the judge, I have found out that they had overturned my case that moment. And I'm just like, it was overturned a year and a half ago. And I found out that moment that it was overturned and no one told me, no one gave me, no one allowed me to come back to the table to submit my evidence, nothing. Um, And that wasn't supposed to happen. And he was coming here and he ended up having, he ended up changing his orders on his own because he felt uncomfortable being near me. And I'm just like, what did I do to you? I was like, okay, that's you. If you feel uncomfortable being near me, that's fine. That's your prerogative. But my evidence and every witness statement that I had says otherwise. And because of the commander overturning it, it emboldened my rapist. It told him like, hey, you know what? There wasn't enough evidence. You're free to go. Just because there's a lack of evidence or a lack of um, documentation for them to get a conviction does not um, mean that you did not do it. It does not mean it at all. When you go to court, is not is about what you can prove in court. It's about the best attorney wins. So if you can't afford the best attorney, and someone has the most like Johnny Cochran of an attorney, yeah, your 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 chances of winning and beating the case is good. Yeah, and I, the entire system, well, at least that one commander, uh, uh, not on my side, despite everything that I had. So, Jakia, I have loved this conversation, and I know we are getting really close to the end here. So we will definitely be having you back for probably multiple other episodes because I just enjoy having conversations with you. Um, but before we wrap this up, you are now a best-selling author. Yes, I am. War at Home comes out tomorrow, June 22nd. Um, and I became a national bestselling author and I'm so, so excited because what that means to me is that more visibility of war at home means more visibility to survivors, more visibility to the programs and policies that need to be changed and, um, addressed. And that means that, um, the conversation for changes will be on the table so, so soon. So I'm so excited for that. The more successful, successful this book is, 
the more successful that survivors have a chance of changing the policies that are in place so we can better um, and safely serve our country because our enemy is not always on foreign land. Our enemy is sometimes working with us in this same exact building. Yep. And for those of you listening who would be interested in purchasing her book, we will make sure that we have a link to it right in the show notes of this episode. So please check that out to get it. Um, I, for one, cannot wait to read the book. So I am very much looking forward to it. Uh, So before we sign out here, though, do you have any socials that you would like to push out to our audience? Yes. Um, you can find me on Instagram at Jakia Lindley. You can find me on Facebook at J.M. Space Lindley. Um, I don't use Twitter much, but I do have Twitter and I'm also on LinkedIn at Jakia Lindley. Awesome. I'll make sure I have links to all of your socials into our show notes as well. Um, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been really fun and just really fun. I awesome listening to your story and the work that you do to help other fellow survivors and victims in the military it's really inspiring, um, and hopefully I'm sure that our audience will agree with me on that. Um, I'm also very much looking forward to having you back because I know we can think of at least a few more reasons to have you come back to our show. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I got a list. Oh. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> at least one of us keeps lists. <laughs> <laughs> Thank but- you. Yes. Thank you again. Um, And thank you all for listening today. Please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at TouchySubsPod. Email us any questions, comments, or concerns to TouchySubjectsPodcast at gmail.com. And please rate us on your favorite podcast listening app. It really does help the show out. And in the meantime, don't forget to challenge, ask, and discuss when it comes to touchy subjects.